You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Firstly, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting, the Boon, Wurrung and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who are present or listening today. Hi everyone, welcome to M Pavilion on this beautiful Wednesday evening. My name's Lauren Taylor, this is Simon Winkler. You can normally hear us together presenting Breaking and Entering, which is a new releases music program on Triple R on Thursdays. Tonight, we're really excited to bring you the first of four events that we're going to be doing at M Pavilion over summer as part of their M Talks program uh, called Wednesday Assembly. It is a Wednesday. We are assembled here together. And we're going to be talking to a panel of leading creatives uh, addressing the monthly M Pavilion theme. For the month of December, M Pavilion are going to be looking at the theme of connection instruments of harmonious living and exploring everything from humanity to connection to land to storytelling to online existence. And we've asked all of our guests tonight to prepare a talk for you addressing the theme of human connection. We're going to be asking what does it mean to be a human in connection with other humans and also a human in connection with the universe. We're going to hear from each of our speakers first, and then we're going to come together at the end and discuss the theme. Hopefully, there'll be a bit of time for audience questions as well, if anyone's got any burning questions they want to ask towards the end. Hang on to them till then. Exactly. And uh, we will introduce now a wonderful panel of guests who will be speaking to the theme of human connection. We have here with us this afternoon artist, creative producer, and musician, Becky Freeman, a.k.a. Sui Chen, we have with us writer and broadcaster Alicia Sometimes, and we have emerging filmmaker, musician, DJ youth worker, and radio presenter Paul Gorey. We are, of course, talking all about connection tonight, and listening is a key to human connection. In fact, the most basic and powerful way to connect with other people is to actively listen. One of the most powerful things that we can give each other is our attention. Feeling connected means feeling seen and heard. It tells someone that they matter when we listen. Lauren and I were reading various studies that show after we listen to someone, we usually recall around 50% of what we've just heard. How much we recall several days later decreases to something like 20%. Of course, our attention today is becoming an increasingly rare commodity with the increased use of technology and generally just with more demands on our time than ever before. We're all coming from different paths and places to be here tonight. Uh, many of you may have been at work today. Uh, you may have taken in a lot of information already, but we'd love to encourage everyone to settle now into this space, to be present, receptive, and uh, to tune in closely for the next hour to connect. I'd like to introduce our first speaker, it is Becky Freeman, a.k.a. Sui Chen. Becky Freeman is a, an artist, a creative producer working across audio, <laughs> audio, visual and interactive mediums. Uh, within her music project Sui Chen, Becky explores themes of memory, identity and the human relationship to technology. Over the last years, her eclectic taste and distinct conceptual interests have led audiences into some surreal and uncanny terrains. 
Uh, as a producer for art, Arts Processes, she collaborates with programmers, designers, storytellers to meaningfully incorporate technology into visitor experiences at art galleries, museums and cultural organisations. Becky's goal is to inspire deeper engagement to artworks or artefacts by drawing on the emotive landscape, taking a cinematic approach to experience design. Over to you, <laughs> Becky Freeman. Sorry, I uh, jumped the gun on standing next to Lauren just then um, to receive my bio. <laughs> um, I'm not going to talk about any of that stuff tonight. Um, I just want to play this sound to see if it... Oh, is that happening? Let's, let's start that again. Um, I don't know if this is going to make you think of anything. just want to see. Imagine that you are creating a fabric of human destiny. Do not go gentle into that good night. We must never forsake that vision, that human dream, that unshakable faith. Does anyone recognise this? I mean, besides this member of the audience who may have heard me practice this. Um, it was the opening theme song for Encarta 1996, but I'll come to that <laughs> in, a, in a little bit. Um, so this talk will be largely personal, anecdotal, uh, a little bit nostalgic, and hopefully I'll land on a point I'm very grateful to speak with you and I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge any Indigenous people who might be listening in uh, on the eventual podcast or here with us tonight. Um, so growing up in the northwestern suburbs of Sydney with no train line or local bus routes nearby, School holidays for me involved a hot 45-minute walk uphill to the local shopping mall and a bus to Parramatta. I don't know if anyone knows where Parramatta is, but it may, may be the equivalent of Chadston, Northland, Southland, those kinds of destination points uh, for, a, for a teenager from the suburbs. Um, we didn't have mobile phones, and to get constant tickets, you had to camp outside the local Ticketek overnight, like literally camp with a sleeping bag. People remember this kind of vibe and um, to get information you had to hope your family had the latest CD-ROM of Encarta. Um, I think we got like up to Encarta 1996. I can't remember what happened after that. Um, I, I do remember actually. It's called the internet. But anyway, I felt like I was tapping into something bigger even with Encarta and, and then I kind of, there was like a bleakness at the end of it like knowing that the information was finite and it would eventually become redundant or out of date and then I would be disconnected and all I really longed for was to feel connected to the rest of the world and Encarta felt kind of like, you know, it was a lot of like American kind of historical moments so it still there's a point of disconnect um, being, you know, living in Australia. Um, in 1996, the opportunity came with the arrival of the internet and Foxtel to my family home. Um, and if anyone has, that was so exciting. Um, if anyone uh, watched that Netflix series, Pen15, they really document the internet arrival into the home domestic space like so well. Um, so I just want to uh, like acknowledge that 
moment with this amazing sound work called Dial-Up. Um, why does it do that bit? And I don't, like, there's another one we can listen to. I always had a bit of like, that little, <laughs> the little bit where it's like, mm, I don't know, it sounds, it's, it's kind of endearing. Anyway, so um, that moment, and uh, let's just reminisce. This is super specific. I don't know if people are gonna get this one. If anyone had Foxtel, Nickelodeon, this is like the intro to Clarissa Explains It All. Those are the two things that were happening, soundtracking, soundtracking the early days of the internet for me. And, um, you know, the only, the destination point was chatting, right? Like you just went on the internet to chat. And it was a tender time where that was really important and you'd really spend evenings chatting with people online and you'd plan for that. No, 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 I'm not going out tonight. I just want to go to Chat City. And... Um, yeah, it was before the fear set in of how people might abuse their anonymity. And for some, it meant online gaming. For many, it gave us access to music. And um, whilst I laboured away making mixtapes on cassette, taped off the radio, friends with better dial-up connections and home PCs, CD burners, um, and Napster would spend days downloading MP3s and put them on a CD and then sell them at school for profit. Little entrepreneurial people. And um, I would buy them as well. Um, and, you know, it was a time when music wasn't unlimited and infinite. I needed a physical host to carry it. And because of the immense effort involved in, in acquiring it, um, maintaining a stronghold on your family dial-up con connection and fending off any siblings that might be trying to use the phone, um, a certain amount of curation was involved in ensuring the music that you selected to download was really deserved of being shared. And um, I felt like... like uh, music at that time was a real bridge to connection and finding your crew. So my kind of, my crew was like this vibe and I wore petticoats and bleached my hair and um, I wore docks but like I was too late for docks. Uh, you know, like, let's face it, it was the cusp of the end of the 90s. Anyway. Um, I met my first boyfriend by, via my brother's Chat City crush, BungleMad81, uh, bonding over a shared love of Mr. Bungle, complimentary ASL, and that's enough. Like, hey, we're similar age, and, you know, like, and you're not that far away. Cool, got it. You know, that's like all it needed. Um, and we arranged to meet via our siblings at a big day out in 1999 or 2000, and we listened to Chemical Brothers in the boiler room and PJ Harvey on the main stage and at the drive-in for three songs before their set was cut short because people were crowd surfing. And Sam, my first boyfriend, was one of those people. And I thought, wow, that's cool. <laughs> and then we conversed on the landline very late each night. And then no one else in my family could use the internet. And that was that. Um, so for anyone who experienced this particular phase of the internet, I, I know that not everybody had that experience. Some people came after, some people came after the internet, believe it or not. Anyway, um, but I mean, like some people listening in might not have the same connection that, that I'm sharing right now, but I feel like there's enough people born in the 80s that, you know, you know what I mean. Um, and you, ah, look, I've got some more sounds here. Let's just... advanced for a startup sound, I would say. And 
this one. Hands from left to right. <laughs> anyway, so um, that's just like a part of your, your getting pre-connected. Like, and um, some of these sounds, I felt like there were pre-pokes, blacks and badges or notification settings. And the thing that really got me most excited was that and for some other MSN users, but wait, let's do that. Yeah, I don't know. I felt like so much like, um, you know, heart pumping when that happened. So it was really because the first functional use of the internet for me was as a site for connecting to other people and trying to find music that would help me feel connected to something bigger. And I'd split my attention between some kind of essay and a chat window. I talked to people who I was too shy to speak to at school, um, and it felt kind of time-boxed and punctuated by like the dial-up connection, having a limited amount of connection. I don't know. like it, You couldn't endlessly be on the internet like you can today. Um, and it wasn't possible to eat dinner at the dinner table whilst being tucked away near wherever the family PC was, um, where now all of this stuff happens so you know, it's all happening at the same time and you've just got ripples of disruption buzzing beneath your everyday un unless you're really good at, at tuning out of it. Um, I, oh, I've got so many fun sounds here. Let's just play some more. This was like the first ringtone that I really... It, does anyone know Sparkles? I searched long and hard on the internet for this. And uh, Sparkles was like when I was at university and, and no one called me because people didn't call people back then. You just, I'm going to call, it's Sunday night, someone's like, I'll call you on Friday. That's it. And then they called you on Friday and that would be what you hear and you're like, oh my God. It's the only person besides like a parent that calls me. Um, yeah, so I think to now my response to calls, it's like pretty much I... Um, I, I, the sounds now, or hearing that kind of, like being beckoned by a mobile phone is anxiety inducing. And it's, um, I guess a lot of the Nokia sounds were kind of, as they were superseded by, uh, by the smartphone, which had vibrate functionality, I kind of stopped using notifications. I was having ghost vibrations in my pants and that was really disturbing. I don't know if other people have had that feeling where you think your phone is vibrating, but it's not. So. I only had notifications and vibrate for a very short time. And I quickly got into a habit of like everything off and I'd have to look at my phone or be looking at it to receive any calls or messages. And I've kind of been obsessed with this kind of, this, this uh, state of being connected or like always tuned in as a, as a creative concept. And you know, it's a, it's a lifelong pursuit of how to remain the right amount of connected. Um, as an artist, I guess we kind of extract pieces of ourselves and put them into different kinds of forms of communication, whether that might be music or film or uh, writing or visual, a visual form. And I guess that's kind of the way that we arrive at feeling connected and completely coming from a completely different, more uh, self-expression kind of coming from a true place, whereas this kind of constant connection is a, a very different kind of feeling. Um, so uh, at the time of this, you know, this, this is all, all this stuff 
it happened in a very short kind of span. And I feel kind of lucky um, being born in the mid-80s to have known what life was like before... Uh, yeah, n knowing what it was like to exist before. Um, I, I think it's interesting how people have evolved their identities alongside uh, social media and the internet, the access to a lot of information. At the time that I was kind of my formative years, I guess not having that was, it was quite interesting because I learned a lot of things through meeting other people and through conversations. Um, at the time, also Australia wasn't particularly aware or cohesively connected to itself. It probably still is struggling with that. And I didn't really know what it meant to be Australian or what it meant to be half Chinese Malaysian in Australia as well. Like, I didn't know, I didn't, I kind of just had to like meet people and then get another clue to, to, to how I could potentially feel more connected and find a sense of belonging. Um, so I'm going to play a completely different sound thing. Soapy sad. This is a. Um, Soapy sad. 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 So I've kind of a meal at home tonight. I guess I've just started to talk in my music and like I used to just try and sing all the time and advertisements like um, this. Sometimes when I didn't I really child, feel like that was the most like effective way to, to be on communicate TV. what I was feeling. So I a became a lot more direct in the last year and have started to, to kind of write little scripts to perform. Now um, we bow to other screens. I think feeling connected is maybe more of a mood. It's like not stable or fixed, just like happiness or acceptance. And it arrives in a moment, and that moment can be fleeting. And we can just as easily disconnect as easily as we can connect. I could be in a game and forever. I have this little note, kind of like Bluetooth or a Bluetooth speaker. How sometimes it's happening, and then suddenly it drops out. I think our technology reflects the way that we perceive ourselves. Um, so, like, I this other point that I have is about learning and how in education straight out of high school or were prescribed a lot of tech and there's, you know, like a whole lifetime's worth of readings to absorb in a very short time, three years or less, in a university degree. I've spent my whole kind of life still referring to the same university readers and I still haven't read everything in, in those readers, but what's, what's missing, I carry them around with me, um, like bedfellows or like, like shields, and you know, sometimes I look at them, I'm like, oh yeah. But I actually can't really engage in that, it's so abstract. Um, the most kind of knowledge that I've been able to absorb has actually been through learning from other people and connecting to other people, connecting via lived experience and via collaboration. Um, the way that I've always connected has, you know, connected most purely is through music. And just a couple of weeks ago, I sat up on this panel and there was a lot of questions from the audience and the topic was music, art and AI. And a lot of the questions, they came back to, they reflected like a, a cumulative fear, fear of these new technologies rendering us, uh, you know, redundant as humans, as workers, as vessels for independent thought fear of being copied, fear of duplication, fear of being stolen from oneself. Um, and 
the artists on the panel, including myself for the most part, didn't really necessarily hold those fears. And I wondered why that was. Um, you know, Stellark was sitting on this panel and he's trying to make this ear and his um, internet enabled so everyone can listen in to his life. And I think that's amazing and incredible. Um, and I was talking about selling um, a system voice, a copy of my own voice that you could use in place of Siri on my Bandcamp, which I still want to upload, but um, haven't got around to doing yet. But I guess maybe as artists, we're always so used to giving ourselves away, and it's the way that we operate. We trade our self-expression, our talent or skill in exchange for capital to, ex to continue to exist in the world. Um, so I guess what I'm kind of arriving at is even though, you know, we've been through this whole trajectory of having a lack of information and then suddenly in a number of short years everything is just at our fingertips. But the, the missing link is actually your own core self-expression and the choices that led into, you know, previously there's a whole pathway to you actually arriving at a conclusion and now there's a bit of inertia about which way do I go? We've got all these options presented in front of us. Um, I made this album, Losing Linda, uh, adjacent to learning about the experience of parental loss by way of cancer. It was a way of ex escaping from a kind of trauma that I was experiencing. But I kind of fashioned that album into a pop kind of structure, which felt a little bit artificial. Um, and I've since made more music, which I was just playing some, and it didn't have any boundaries. And as a result, the songs go for about 12 to 15 minutes, and they don't really when we perform them live, there's a bit of structure, but it's very much an improvisation. And it kind of needs to be for me, because I have all these feelings that I have inside, but I just, I want to connect with people in that live environment, in the space of a performance. And I feel so lucky to be able to have that opportunity. And um, I guess music has evolved to me as being this static thing, to being this kind of lived experience and really in that moment where you have an assembled audience, you can pretty much do anything and, and you know, it's, it's a privilege to be able to be in a present moment with so many people and that's, as a musician, that's what you're able to do. So, uh, in my performances, I like to walk out in the audience as well and get unamplified so that people can hear me as just a small voice in a big crowd as well. Um, so, anyway. I see like dangerous sides of online existence, but they've always been present in human nature. With the design of new social networking technology and the emergency of, sorry, with, with the design of new social networking technology and amplifying our less desirable traits and the re-emergence of things like a troll is no longer a cute doll with fluoro hair or a goblin under a bridge. It's a new form of online bullying and people change the way they communicate to fit into the framework of social technologies. We kind of lose the ability to articulate complex emotions that don't translate to language. Emojis are the perfect example of a Unicode that's kind of adopted in place of verbal expression, but it's entirely reductive. Reducing things to thumbs up and thumbs down is, is not super helpful. Uh, when my mom was bedridden with her illness, her iPhone, due to its portability and connection to the internet, and community kept her feeling close to friends when they could no longer visit. She could hold it in her bed and receive love sent from all the places she'd touch people in real life. But that's more of a reflection of who she was within the world reflected back online. Um, I think that 
there's power in gathering in real life like we are today, creating new rituals offline, and connection takes time. Though we've trained ourselves to expect fast answers, fast results, the truth is to achieve longer lasting connections. And we need to invest in people, gaining knowledge or experience in our communities, our relationship to the stolen lands we live and work and practice on. We need to invest time in connecting to each other. I make music to feel connected to myself, and the greatest reward I receive is the feeling of connection to other people. And that gives me a purpose. So that's all, that's all I have to say. Sorry I spoke for so long. Um, I feel like I should play something. Uh, no, I mean, like, just to finish it off, like, like this. What's not happening? You can, you can talk over this, it's just... <laughs> it's just the Nokia. Assembly of Nokia. Just Hall, Hall of Fame. Never forget. <laughs> it's true. Um, huge thanks, Becky Freeman, for such a beautiful and evocative reflection on various themes of connection. And uh, certainly a very powerful reminder of the ways in which sound and music can connect us with different periods of history, uh, the early internet era, and the pre-internet pre connectivity as well as the, the era that we live in now as well. Such a beautiful presentation. Next up, we're very pleased and honoured to, uh, to welcome Paul Gori. Paul Gori is a Gunai, Kurnai and Yoda Yoda man based in Nam. An emerging filmmaker, playwright, musician, drummer in Dreaming Now, youth project worker and radio presenter. You might have heard him even earlier this morning on Triple R. Paul is a DJ whose mixing and selecting skills are called upon for festivals, uh, Dark Mofo most recently, uh, uh, also at parties, events, at arts organizations like NGV and Acme, amongst many others. Paul is not only a DJ, but a DJ trainer <laughs> as well at Melbourne Sound School. And as a filmmaker, his film Young Mob Questioning Treaty was recently accepted into the International Indigenous Film Festival Imagine Native. It's a documentary presenting the views of young people around treaty and the way forward in this process. Please welcome Paul Gurry. Holy shit, that was a fucking sick bio that... Um I didn't even send you that. <laughs> Fucking cool. All right, so <clears throat> can I close this? Yeah, Matt. Um, so I'm not as prepared because I've had a big couple of weeks. My older sibling had twins. Um, yeah, you can clap for that if you want. <laughs> but I'm kind of changing a bit of what I was going to say because based on... Yeah, I want to talk more about my music connection as well because I wasn't going to, but now I am. Um, as you know, my name's Paul Gorry. I'm a Gunai Kurnai and Yori Yoda man. And I'd like to pay my respects to the land we're meeting upon, um, the Bunrung and the Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nations. Um, yeah, land was stolen. Sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, as you know, I'm a new uncle, um, which means like, I think I'm allowed to tell uncle jokes. Um, but I won't do any tonight, or if I do, they might be by accident. Um, I'm also a son, a brother, a cousin, 
and possibly a best friend to some people. Um, and with that comes a lot of responsibilities within not, my, not only my immediate family, but within the broader Aboriginal community itself. Um, connecting with family is essential for me and it is essential for upholding responsibilities. It is essential to understanding the history of the land that I live on as well. Um, when I read the question initially, it got me thinking of what instruments slash tools are used for like some sort of harmonious living with the people around me and how I connect. Um, and it could be how you communicate honestly and effectively, or it could be motiv motiv motivating myself to do the mundane, mundane tasks that support my family, or it could be anything really to connect with just anyone. Um, I'm going off script now. Um, but speaking of how I, I connect with people, when I was younger, I think it was like my first day of preschool, I um, got locked in the toilets uh, at the end of the day. So um, I think I went there to connect with myself and didn't, didn't come out. But that's okay. Um, and then as I got older, my mum tried to get me to connect into team sports. So I joined a rugby league team and um, that allowed me to connect with other young angry boys tackling each other and um, competing um, over a ball and wanting to win a grand final. I won like two, which was fucking sick. Um, and then um, I think I realised I was still pretty angry growing up um, about being locked in that toilet. So I made some friends that also loved hardcore music in high school and um, I was a huge music nerd. I um, used to um, buy those hardcore CDs from like this place in Brisbane it's called Polyester Records. Anyone been there? Yeah, I don't know if it's, it still exists, but it's not as good. Um, and uh, I used to work in Macca's as well, and I did the overnight shift, like, a lot. And I think it was illegal because I was 16 um, to do that, to make a 16-year-old work from 10 a.m., 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. But to keep me awake, I would listen to hardcore music on fucking the loudest you can... Sorry, I'm swearing a lot, yeah, but... um. You can imagine that it would have been really weird for drive-through customers just hearing <laughs> Screamo, I Killed the Prom Queen, Parkway Drive, like all these sad, angry white guys screaming about something. And I, I thought I resonated with that. I thought I connected with that. Um, but it was cool for its time. It allowed me to um, realise that I wasn't into that music really, and I really just loved um, instrumentation. Um, so then throughout life, I was, I, once I got older, I was kind of doing more music to connect with people. 
Um, you might think I'm a scene kid because I played in an indie folk band as well. Um, I've gone through all the different genres, eh? Um, and then, um, yeah, and that was that was fun. And um, uh, <clears throat> now that I'm a bit older as well, through using music, it's been an opportunity for me to connect with um, other Aboriginal people all over the continent, um, other Aboriginal people across the oceans. Um, it's been, yeah, it's been cool. Um, I'm not going to speak for the whole 10 minutes, but thank you very much for listening. Thanks to Paul Gorry. Uh, if you just joined us at M Pavilion as well, uh, we're chatting about this month's uh, December M Pavilion theme, human connection, what it means to be in connection with other humans and what it means to be a human in connection with the universe. Our third and final speaker tonight, and we're going to come together at the end and have a bit more of a chat about the topic. Uh, our third and final speaker tonight this evening is Alicia Sometimes. Alicia Sometimes is an Australian writer, a poet and a broadcaster. She's performed her spoken word poetry uh, at many venues, festivals and events around the world. Her poems have been in Best Australian Science Writing, Best Australian Poems, Overland, Mianjin uh, and many more. She's also one-sixth of the Outer Sanctum podcast on the ABC. She's director and co-writer of the Science Poetry Planetarium shows, Elemental and Particle Wave. And also, currently, uh, a Leonardo, a creative advisor, is that right, at the Science Gallery of Melbourne. She's very passionate about combining music, uh, sorry, science and art together. And we're going to hear from uh, Alicia on the topic. Thanks, Alicia. Thanks, Lauren. And there is music in my life. My dad was a drummer. And um, I fell, used to fall asleep in his kick drum, not when he was playing it, but um, music has been a, a major part of my life. And I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that were gathered here today, the Boonwurrung and the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, and also acknowledge that they were the first artists and scientists on this land. One of the most primordial intrinsic needs of humans is to comprehend the world around us and then communicate that understanding. We thrive to connect. We yearn to understand everything we see, hear, touch and see, sense. There are many ways to communicate and connect with each other. And I am interested in the way we do this with words. Nobel Prize winning physicist Niels Bohr said, what is it that we humans depend on? We depend on our words. We are suspended in language. Our task is to communicate that experience and ideas to others. We depend on language. As a poet, language is my playground. I twist words, I take them out to swing and constantly bend them as much as I can. To explore, to question, to solve, to look for patterns and big ideas, to relate and to understand what people are going through. And storytelling is so crucial in this process. 
I'm so drawn to the arts and sciences and I love combining them because I'm so passionate that we have an obligation to understand the world we live in and the universe we inhabit. Scientists regularly and successfully use vivid storytelling in their science communication. They use metaphor to weave their narrative. When talking about how quarks are classified in flavours or how gravitational waves send ripples through space-time and about the urgency and action in regards to climate change. A climate scientist recently told me in the most heartbreaking plea that of course the science is in and there's only so many ways that she can explain what we are doing to the planet. She's an accomplished, prolific, articulate scientist. She knows that we all have to do something to make this urgency stick, to connect through others with art, storytelling, radio, plays, poetry, with many voices creating stories that help people understand that we can't be complacent. We need to recognise that government, industry, schools, individuals must act. We need perspective. And I'm reminded of when I heard the story of Apollo 8 when I was younger. It set me on a lifelong love affair with science. Launched on December 21, 1968, Apollo 8 became the first crewed spacecraft to leave the moon orbit as its destination, to leave the Earth. In the early stages of flight with the Earth receding, James Lovell noticed how he could put out his thumb and his little finger and squeeze the Earth between his fingers. Frank Borman said, Tell the people in Tierra del Fuego to put their raincoats on. It looks like a bit of a storm. When their spacecraft came out from behind the moon on its fourth past, for the first time in human history, the crew witnessed firsthand a stunning earth rise. William Anders took a black and white shot, then asked Lovell for some colour film and captured the earth, half hidden in the shadow of the sun. It was later picked up by Life magazine as one of its 100 photos of the century. Apollo 8 paved the way for the moon landing and advanced space travel. But that photo immediately signified more. It was for humanity. It was about seeing beyond ourselves, beyond borders and lines we arbitrarily draw up. It was about sharing one space within space, a planet that has a thin sheet of air extending from the surface of the earth to the edge of space, an atmosphere that counts on all of us working together to protect it. It is a photo of perspective. The Earthrise photo sometimes gets forgotten because when we think of our vulnerable planet in isolation, we think about the photo that scientist Carl Sagan made famous in his book Pale Blue Dot. It was a photo taken by Voyager 1 in 1990, looking back on the fringe, from the fringes of our solar system, 6.4 billion kilometres away from home. Earth is only a tiny point in that picture, 0.12 pixels in a, in a minuscule blue smudge amongst scattered rays of light emanating from our sun. Sagan begins, look at that dot. That's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being that ever was, lived out their lives. 
the aggregate of our joy and our suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero, every coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. He ends the passage with, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than in this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with each other and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. When I heard those, read those words, I was just in awe. Apollo 8 gave us a personal, stunning view of a home taken with human hands. Borman later recalled, it was the most beautiful, heart-catching sight of my life one that sent a torrent of nostalgia, of sheer homesickness surging through me. But it was only thing in space that had any colour to it. Everything else was black or white, but not earth. Both of these pictures reflect all of us, continuing our daily lives while the vastness of space cushions us in its arms. What better way to highlight how we all are in this together how we all share the same space. We are connected through story and we need to feel empathy. We need to care about each other. And I'll leave you with a poem that I wrote after reading Carl Sagan's Cosmos for about the 20th time. Every part of me wanted to reach out and touch the moon and talk to a friend and maybe, maybe just understand where we all come from, that we all have the exact same beginning. So this is called Cosmos Revisited for Carl Sagan. Flicking the bleached corners of a postcard with my thumbnail, my friend has written a postcard from Berlin. He writes of love, of dizzying drum beats, shop doors and asphalt. I listen to mood indigo, whipping up theories on the beginning of life. I think of myself as I did when I was a child without earth, without space, without time. I once heard if you read one book a week for the rest of your life, you'll be well versed, but it's not even one tenth of 1% of all the books in all the libraries in all the world. A communal memory not stored in our genes or in our brains. We novelize, we are angular, more verbose than lions. This made my postcard more literally stellar, a thread of history held in my hands like vines. To some, this was insignificant with tales of German beer sculling competitions and the price of hashish in Prague, but it was written nonetheless. It gave me a feeling of cosmic loneliness and galactic togetherness. I'd written in a song to a lover, when you said you wanted space, I didn't think you meant the Milky Way. Time and space are fused. It takes around 90 years for the light of HD 70642 to reach Earth. 
each time we gaze at this star, we are looking at it when it gave off its light, when Einstein was still forming theories, when we had felt the effects of the First World War. Swing was in its early formation and my grandparents had barely known one another, still too shy to ask each other out for a dance. So all things are relative. Imagine a time before the song, imagine. Imagine a time before nuclear power, before industry. Imagine a time before libraries, before words, before fire, when we were still part of the ocean, when we lived by sound and rawness, when we were governed by instinct, when we feared storms, when we revered nature, when we lived by cycles, a time of grunting and survival, a time before logic. And before that, a time without noise. When we couldn't find a lodestar, when we knew not how to name it, a time before the neocortex, before the limbic system, in the early days of the R complex, when we were singular cells, before we could taste and smell, before sex was invented, before rock was formed, before planets cooled, before matter, a time before time. We bond together in this mingled star stuff. We are the lattice and the silhouette. When you know love to be conquering, how a passage in a poem can shape your life, labels fall away. Theology calls the different levels Father, Son and Holy Ghost. Psychiatrists label it conscious, subconscious and superconscious. Scientists word it energy, matter, antimatter. Philosophers say id, ego, superego. New Ages mention mind, body and spirit. Poets declare mind, heart and soul. And we are all stars. Beethoven's ninth, the velocity of honey, sleeping, where things begin and end. With bad sitcoms, physics problems, pimples before a date, politics, the clandestine, and football codes, fashion, war, famine, repetitive jokes, humour and fortune cookies, cause and effect, cryogenics, manipulation, gene pools, backgammon, phone calls, parents, alchemy, postcards from best friends overseas, music and infinity. As Carl Sagan aptly put it, these are just a few of the things that hydrogen atoms do given 15 billion years of evolution. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Alicia, sometimes, giving such a, a deep and cosmic perspective on the subject of interconnectedness. And of course, here we all are today, Wednesday Assembly at M Pavilion. This is the first in a series of talks, and it's been fascinating and thrilling to hear all of your perspectives on the subject of connectedness of human connection and our connection with the environment and the universe indeed. Following from the presentations, it's come time for some questions. And um, we love the quote that you uh, mentioned just before from Niels Bohr, <laughs> Alicia. Um, what is it that we humans depend on? Uh, we are suspended in language. Our task is to communicate experience and ideas to others. And indeed, there are so many ways for us to connect, one of which is writing, uh, broadcasting, one of which is music. Um, been so many great stories too, hearing about your early relationship with uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Becky, the way that you were listening to hardcore and overnight shifts and playing in folk bands. Music of all different genres helps us to, to connect with ourselves and to find our tribe. Maybe if we could um, ask how maybe that's changed as making music, how has that helped you to connect to yourself and to connect with other people? Maybe starting with you, Paul. Um. That's real hard to answer straight away. But um, I guess, like, how it has affected me is that I, or, like, the way I create, 
Um, I guess I think about what I like more instead of, or like, I don't care about how I'm perceived, really, I guess. So it's like, it, at the end of the day, I'm still going to like whatever I like. Yeah, I don't really, it doesn't really matter. And especially, like, if I'm connecting with people, they're going to respond to that as well. Does that make sense? So in a way, it's kind of like you're exploring ideas through the process of creating, but then you're also generating a dialogue with your audience that kind of enables you to kind of extend that understanding? Yeah, exactly. And because of the music that I, I drum for, um, Dreaming Now, which is like highly political, um, and being an Aboriginal person, it makes you already political on this continent. Um, yeah, you become like kind of spotlighted once you end them, and especially where yeah, the music he's making is quite forthright and f kind of um, in your face. Um, so when you do go to a performance um, and we're getting, like, you're getting this, like, these ideas shoved down you in the, in the way that, like, some people might find a little bit taken aback, but it's still, like, we're connecting on a deeper level. But, yeah... Exactly, essential messages and also educating people. Yeah, well. exactly, yeah. Yeah. And Becky, perhaps in your case as well. I think, like, I, I just enjoy people expressing themselves. Um, you know, my line, if I don't really... I, I, I would say this is not for me, even if I can recognise someone's talent, their self-expression, their devotion to that message and just being truthful and finding their own truth. I really appreciate that first and foremost, even if taste-wise it's not something that I would maybe choose to put on or listen to. Um, and in that way I kind of can connect to anyone that's just being really honest in their music and or their art and I kind of just can talk about that for a really long time. <laughs> and I also have a like I have an issue with talking about gear for way too long too in front of people that aren't necessarily interested. So I'm trying to be a bit more conscious of that. It can be kind of a bit annoying, I think. But um, yeah, I can talk about any number of musical things and just be connected with someone, particularly if you know there's some really niche specific problem solving that happens in a studio environment. It's so great to find someone to like that has had that same problem as, as you. And um, I think maybe people like beyond music, just people that are making a bit more of a, a project about a creative pursuit um, there's a lot of decisions that come and choices that come along with that every every step of the way where you're, you're preferencing that over some other kind of form of work or way to spend your time. And I think that in itself is a, like opening for connecting to other people because you're saying so much that this is, this is how I choose to spend my time, you know, like... And, um, yeah, I think travelling around... And doing shows, if, if you're lucky enough to be able to play outside of your home city, it's like you have access to a whole community already because you might play on the same festival and there, there could be friends for that time that you're there. So I think it's quite a welcoming... I mean, if you're open to it and just no assumptions and don't judge people, um, it can be quite a welcoming like, lifestyle to, to, to live as a musician. And Becky, you were talking about fear uh, just before, and I guess, yeah, making work always involves some element of, you know, risk or intimacy or vulnerability. 
Uh, maybe Alicia, I'll ask you, what's, what's been your experience of that? How, knowing that you're sort of, you know, vulnerable in that creative process and connecting with others, how do you overcome fear and how do you find that strength to share what you're doing with other people? It's so fascinating and thinking about collaboration is uh, a really important thing. That one thing that you can have that playing with other musicians, you can have that honesty or uh, a writing collaboration or collaboration across arts. I love that. But fear for me is a driving factor. For some people, it might be something that they, they consciously might avoid or know that it's at the fringes, but I tend to walk into fear a lot. It's what helps create uh, work. And I, I don't know how you guys feel, but sometimes fear is just one of those things I love to challenge myself and put myself in situations that I don't normally put myself in just to just to, to come up with something interesting. So I like living on the fringe of uh, things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think yeah, it's interesting to talk about fear. I mean, I do a lot of silly things right before a show sometimes, make things very complicated. And then just as I'm about to do it, I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Why did I... So I think... I mean, that's to keep it interesting for yourself. And I think, like, the fear element, especially in a performance environment, um, again, going back to that point I was speaking on before, it means that you're doing something there just for the people that have assembled themselves for that performance, and it's special. It's a, it's a one-off thing. Um, I think if, if you don't have some kind of fear involved, then maybe it's become too everyday or too not so, not so special anymore. What do you think? Yeah, you're right. I still get a bit nervous before gigs, um, even though I'm like hidden behind Neil and a drum kit um, and a cloth so no one can watch me. No, um, no, but seriously, it does get, yeah, I do get, yeah. I, I, I pace around and um, normally up until five minutes before a gig, you'll see me like in the crowd, like walking around. I probably should be backstage um, and like, you know, like, practicing with the drumsticks or whatever. But I don't do that. Um, I just stroll around. And um, also, when it comes to, like, creating music, I've got a lot of fear too. Um, like, my own production. Um, for years, all I've been doing is just releasing demos on SoundCloud and then, um, you know, they'd be, like, very half-made demos. So, yeah, I get fear. I guess in a conversation we're having today about connection and connectedness, we're sort of acknowledging in a, a very literal way that everything ex exists, you know, in relation to, to everything else. And we'd love to talk to you all about your perspective on this. How do you all perhaps link your work and your stories with, you know, wider um, cultural conversations? How do you see your work in relation perhaps to your individual context as well, your upbringings and your circumstances. But maybe we'll start with you, you know, in terms of the wider cultural conversations, Alicia. Uh, well, as a poet, you have thousands upon thousands of fans and <laughs> <laughs> um, so poetry is one of those things, you can be in a bubble and um, it, it can be so small. So I always want to take poetry outside of the page or even the stage and that's why I like creating large shows and I love collaborating with musicians and video artists and sound artists and all sorts of people. Um, and with the message of science as well, uh, I'm so, as I said, I'm so passionate 
and I have an urgency that there's so many things like climate change or political things or things that happen today in politics that we need to communicate and and really talk about. So in writing that can become quite literal, but it also can be something that you like, I like to push, like all of us um, like to push boundaries in so many different ways. But I really want to take my work outside of my safe space. Yeah, I mean, I think the time, the time at which I was coming to like an acoustic guitar crouched and I don't know, like, trying to get away from whoever, whatever family member to, like, sing about someone I had a crush on is long gone. Um, <laughs> like, I don't really, I don't know. And I haven't really, I, I, I hear some people talk about art making as something like, I still hear this, which is kind of surprising to me, like, that they need to feel, oh, I'm happy now, I don't make art. And I find that so bizarre because I only make art when I'm, or make anything when I'm feeling, like, energy and oh, I, I can't if yeah I don't really it's a private time if I'm really having a, a low moment so I don't really mm, I don't really capture that in any way or document that through any kind of writing or music or video so um, I think that it's so important for artists to respond to the cultural context it's like that's what you're there to do because it's the only non-censored kind of medium at this point so if you're not really like engaged and using that public forum to spread a message in today, then, like, but if you're, you know, if you're speaking your truth, then that is still a political message. And if, if that comes in the form of, like, an emotional trigger point, then I think that's entirely valid and important as well. But um, I think that, yeah, it's really now important for artists and creative, like, anyone putting anything out there um, in, in the creative realm that, you kind of, you, you do use that, that forum to, to say something. And you, you have influence over people, even as a poet, like you put it, you put it in a book. You, you, you may have those 1,000 fans. People, people don't really, um, yeah, you don't know, I guess. You don't have the measurable people that you can count in a venue. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, you have, to, you have to really, it's your responsibility to stay truthful to what's happening in the world. What do you think, Paul? <laughs> oh. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I do know. But, like, um, what do I know? I, I guess, like, yeah. Can we get the question again, please? We're oh, talking, I guess, about how do you link your, your work and your stories with, you know, wider cultural conversations. That oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, recently I did a documentary. Um, and, yeah, there's a conversation around the treaty stuff in Victoria. So we used documentary and short film as a medium for that. Um, I did that with my cousin Taning. And, um, yeah, I guess it's like a... That was a good way to tackle a, whatever cultural... Something cultural or social happening at the moment. Um, musically, um, yeah, as you know, on the panel, everyone here, probably everyone in the audience um, that I drum for... Dreamy now, and that's uh, that's reacting to the, the the landscape of which we live in today as well, and also um, re talks. It's kind of like reimagining and recentering Aboriginal people and sovereignty, uh, and, and the future of Aboriginal people on this land. 
Um, that's my understanding of it. That he's like, um, yeah, this, um, I can't remember who it was, but someone used to um, think about what a sovereign apocalypse looked like. And I thought that was pretty cool. I can't tell you who, but um, it wasn't me. There have been so many great reflections on connectedness. I guess we're running out of time in some respects, but we would like to turn it over to the audience if there were any questions or any sort of comments that anyone had that they'd like to contribute. Um, please do raise your hand and we'll try to get you a microphone as quickly as possible. Any humans want to connect? Come on. <laughs> There's one, oh, we have one over here, excellent. Um, yeah, I wouldn't mind getting a link for your um, documentary about the treaty, man. Yeah, yes, for sure, bro. It sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it's Young Mob questioning treaty and uh, on NITV. Yep. So you go on NITV Demand or SBS Demand and type in Paul Gorry. Young Mob Questioning Treaty. Yeah. Yes, yeah, bro. Yeah. You do, yeah. Just listening to some smart people. It was really cool. Like, um, I wasn't feeling too connected when I was sleeping over here earlier. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I kind of feel like a human a little bit now. <laughs> Man, thanks. Some smart and really beautiful words come out of you. Um, yeah, cheers for letting me be here. That's lovely. Perhaps just as a, maybe just a final thought, I guess there's so much, you know, to explore on the topic. It's so wide ranging. But for each of you, maybe just briefly, how has your understanding or your definition of connection changed over time as you've grown and as your relationship with yourself and others have evolved? Paul, did you want to... Yeah, because I, I, I kind of cut myself short, eh? But, um, yeah, I guess I wanted to... Can I add on that? What I wanted to say was like, um, I think I found as I got older, connection became more um, like dance and interpretive dance. No, it didn't become like that. It was like, um, yeah, it became like more meaningful. Like as I get older, like I just start to become more um, aware of how I connect with people and how my actions can... Uh, be received and how that interferes with how I connect with different people I know really well. Um, yeah, that's a reflection. Yeah, I feel similarly. Um, I think that I started to replace like content or happiness or good, like those kind of expressions um, that are kind of positive with connected because I don't think like feeling not happy um, is a bad thing. Like, I think it's really natural to feel anxious about the way things are at the moment. So, like, I think maybe just being connected is really important, I think. Um, if I feel disconnected, then that's when I think that's probably a bit, like, I need to change some things. But if I'm feeling other kinds of emotions and I'm responding to things and, and it's, I think, yeah, just being en engaged and connected is, is really important um, to, to giving yourself some kind of, like, motivation to be living here on this planet. 
And I mean, when I was younger, I used to connect to Scooby-Doo and Han Solo and Princess Leia. They were my main sort of things that I wanted to connect to and make people laugh and connect to friends. And that obviously carries through and you connect with family. But there's a connection to land. There's a connection to stories. There's a connection to listening to music. You know, when a DJ plays and you just... The, that connection... It's, 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 it's such a feeling, it's a pull, it's a, a strength, isn't it? So um, there's connection to a whole lot of things and I, I really, at the moment, the connection to the planet is quite pulling me. Well, thank you so much to our guests uh, this evening. We've got Paul Gorey, Becky Freeman, otherwise known as Sui Chen, and Alicia sometimes. Please, everyone, put your hands together for our guests. We've been talking about human connection. It's the first of our Wednesday assemblies. If you feel like you may have only retained 20% um, of what was spoken about tonight, this uh, is a good thing that it's been going to be recorded as a podcast. So uh, you can refresh your memory online at any time. Uh, this is the first in a free monthly series that we're doing for M Pavilion, Simon and myself. Uh, we'll be back here Wednesday, January 22nd to discuss the January M Pavilion theme of unplugged energy without electricity. Thanks heaps to the M Pavilion team as well for making this possible today. And thank you for joining us. Have a beautiful night. And thanks, Lauren and Simon. Thanks, Lauren and Simon. Thank you. Peace. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.